Welcome to the MINS podcast series, In the Boardroom, Practical Advice and Guidance for Growth-Oriented Companies. My name is Steve Osborne. I'm a partner in the San Francisco office, and my practice is helping private companies grow, fund, and exit. Welcome to our session on down rounds and navigating rough seas in the boardroom. And I'm joined by two of our top corporate governance partners, Melanie Levy, who is a capital markets lawyer in San Diego, and whom most of you who are fans of the podcast know well, and our partner, Jeremy Glazier. Jeremy is the chair of our venture capital and emerging companies practice. And I brought us together here today to talk a little bit about what we might find given the macroeconomic environment that we're in. You know, public valuations are down and access to public finance markets are constrained, and the government's raising interest rates to slow investment, and the government itself is spending less money and all of this means that raising money in 2023 will look a lot different than it did in 2021 and the beginning of 2022. I've heard the uh, phrase uh, recently that flat rounds are the new up rounds. But in our practice, sometimes the old adage of down rounds or something that should be avoided at all costs may be something that not all of us will be able to avoid this next year. And so we thought we might start with the idea of destigmatizing the down round but also helping uh, our podcast listeners understand what is a down round, what implications might come from a down round, and then how to prepare both as a board, but also as a company for those kinds of down rounds. And so uh, I'll start with there, which is, uh, you know, Jeremy, can you help us understand a little bit about what is a down round and maybe pulling from some of that experience you have, you know, either from the dot-com crash or from the financial crisis of 08, you know, how, what that looked like in your client base at that time. Sure. Thanks, Steve. And thanks, Melanie. Um, well, you know, it is interesting, right? There's always a cycle. And, you know, we had this incredible boom up cycle once again in 2020, 2021. Um, and here we are now where due to all the things you mentioned, Steve, companies are now finding it harder to raise capital. So, you know, what happens in these situations is a lot of companies raise money at very favorable valuations during the boom time. And, you know, maybe they had enough money to last, 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, if they were lucky. Well, as we start to get closer and closer to the time where their cash may be running out and they need to go raise money, well, guess what? The valuations are different, right? They're down. And so when they go talk to their existing investors or potentially new investors, you know, they might be very surprised to find out that that billion dollar valuation that they got in 2021, well, maybe that's down, you know, 25%, maybe more. And so a down round is just, Kind of what it sounds like, right? It's a pretty good descriptive term. You're going to be raising money at a new fundraising at a valuation lower than the prior valuation. Now, why is that a big deal? Well, because the idea with venture capital is you do your seed, you do your A, you do your B, and each uh, next round theoretically is at a higher valuation. That's the goal, right? That's the way you kind of build the company. Well, now when economic times turn against us, we're now unfortunately having to face a situation where we need to raise money at a lower valuation. I'll stop there for a second and we can dig in deeper if you want about some of the implications of that, but that basically explains the situation. Yeah, I think one of the things I, I think about when we think about the implications of a down round is, you know, is that showing that the market has lost trust and confidence? Is that going to mean your employees are going to be looking for new jobs? What impact does maybe your existing investor base have on, you know, this situation. Melanie, any thoughts there on, on that? Well, 
So for public companies, it's a little bit different than venture capital because it is expected that you will have some volatility in your market price, the price of your common stock um, as a public company. But once your stock begins to decline and go further and further below certain price thresholds, certainly one of the things that you will start to notice is your investors who may be invested in you at above $5 will not be the same investors that will hold you below $5 per se. In fact, some institutional investors have funds that once you get below a certain price, they, they will not invest in your company anymore. It will trigger a sale. Other things that can happen is if you were previously on an index, such as like the Russell 3000, if you fall below that and that index is recalibrated, there are some funds who are specifically investing in that index, then you may find yourself being subject to your shares being sold or dumped into the market, which then exacerbates the problem of your price declining because you price declined so that you would be taken off of an index. And then the funds that were holding you because you were on the index then have to sell your shares, which then floods the market with your shares, causing your price to further decline. So for public companies, while there is, you know, obviously some volatility, a sustained decline in stock price will change, number one, your investors, and will probably also change the terms of what you previously raised. The terms that you're going to raise during that down round period are not going to be similar, likely to what you raised before. Hey, Steve, if I can maybe jump in, you know, you asked about, you know, how this is going to be perceived in the market. And I want to maybe just touch on that because... You know, look, I think there's this perception, oh, a down round is such a negative thing and it really reflects negatively on the company. And the reality is, yeah, there can be situations where a company has underperformed, uh, hasn't met milestones, right? And therefore, they have to raise money at a lower valuation. So that could, you know, look badly for the company, right, as far as the way the market perception would be. However, when you have the kind of adjustment we've had, you know, in the capital markets, the public capital markets, that flows through into the private markets. And so this is kind of one of these unique situations where, I could argue that it doesn't really reflect badly on the company. It's just the reality that valuations were very high. Now they're going back towards what we would call more, you know, more normal and more typical valuations. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, in a zero interest rate environment, the expectations of growth are much lower than if there's a 6% interest rate environment or what have you. You know, so I think in many ways, like, you know, the expectation of what you're going to do with the money is much uh, stricter now. And the types of returns that even venture capital investors are looking for, let alone any capital investor are looking for, you know, I think will come with uh, maybe more realistic expectations on where the valuation needs to be to drive those results, both in the private markets, but also, as Melanie said, in the, in the public markets. Right. I mean, the good, the, good, the good news is, though, we haven't really, I mean, if you take a step back and look at the macro environment, Steve, the good news is, you know, so many companies were able to access both public markets as well as private markets during 2020 and 2021 that sitting here, you know, we're December 2022. We really haven't seen a dramatic pickup in these down round financings. Yes, it's happening, but it's nothing like we saw, you know, in the 08 financial crisis or in the 01.com and the, and the aftermath of that. So the real question is, you know, is, is that what's going to happen now in 2023? Or are things going to turn around uh, when these companies are getting within that, you know, crucial kind of three to six months left of cash and they got to go out and raise money? Where are we going to be at that time? You know, one of my favorite quotes, Steve, is it's really hard to make predictions, especially about the future. I think that's attributed to Yogi, to Yogi Berra. <laughs> so, 
So I'm not going to predict uh, where the markets are going to be in 2023, but I think we're all going to keep our eyes watching that to see, you know, when companies have to raise money and what it's going to look like. And if they have other alternatives to not have to actually, you know, dilute their equity holders with a, a significant reduction in valuation. Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But before we get there, maybe it's worth talking a little bit about the implication, at least for private companies, on the existing financing terms. Like what terms will be uh, at issue, let's say, in a down round? And then potentially, you know, what uh, new financing terms you might see in a down round, both in a private and public context. Jeremy, starting first with, if we're talking about a down round in the boardroom, what terms in our existing financing documents are likely to be most implicated by that? Sure. So, you know, there's a lot of issues when you're talking about doing a financing at a lower valuation. But like with any financing, kind of the first thing you do is you have to pull out the company's certificate of incorporation that lays out all the rights of the preferred holders in the prior rounds. And you need to take a look and see, okay, are we going to have a problem getting an approval for a down round financing? Do we have block rights, voting rights by specific classes of the preferred who may not be happy with us doing a down round financing, uh, that's certainly an important issue to see if you can even get the deal done. You also have to take a look at what's called the anti-dilution provision. So pretty much every single preferred stock financing has some sort of anti-dilution protection, whether it's broad-based or what's called a ratchet. And so you have to take a look and see, well, what's going to be the impact on the anti-dilution adjustments of your existing preferred? And what does that do to the cap table? How badly does that sort of blow up the number of shares and dramatically reduce the valuation uh, based upon that down round financing as well. And then finally, uh, most venture financings have what are called preemptive rights. So existing investors, particularly you know venture capitalists, have negotiated the right to buy shares in the next round. And so you're going to have to think about providing those rights to those additional venture capital investors, you know, determining who's likely to buy, who's maybe going to sit out, so you can kind of get a sense of the possibility and probability of getting this round done. Now, those are obviously important issues that you kind of look at at the beginning, but there's sort of even, I would say, even more important issues, Steve, that you need to think about going into a down round. There's some very serious implications to a board of raising money at lower valuations. As you can imagine, the folks that invested at a higher valuation are not going to be particularly happy about that, right? They expected to have this valuation go up and that their investment was going to go up in value, not down in value. And so there is definitely, you know, risk of potentially, you know, litigation from unhappy stockholders when you do this. So there's a, there's a process, a pretty tried and true process, Steve, that companies go through when they're going to do a down round financing. And, and we can dive into all that level of detail, but I want to quickly raise at least that the preliminary thing at the time you're sort of thinking about it, you really want to make sure that you've had a look out into the market, you know, kind of a, a market check, so to speak. You've tried to reach out to other financing sources. You've established some sort of a record that you've really tested the market to see what valuations look like. And that's even more important if you end up doing what's called an inside round, right? A down round with just the existing investors. You want to really have something out there that shows that you didn't just give the inside investors this opportunity to invest at a very low valuation, but you actually did try to find new investors and theoretically, maybe they, they balked, right? So now you're only doing an inside round. And, and again, we can get into the implications of an inside round versus using a third party as well. Yeah, well, I think, I think you're hitting on a pretty good topic, which is, and we've talked about this before, but, you know, board of directors 
of companies have fiduciary duties to the company. And, and part of that is a duty of loyalty, duty of care. And when it comes to making decisions about the company, you know, at least in Delaware, you get broad deference, which is called the business judgment rule. If you're making decisions in good faith without conflicts of interest and they're in the best interest of the company, you're going to get that deference. The problem that comes up in these rounds, as you mentioned, is often that, that really on the board, there's very few people who are not conflicted, that they aren't going to be implicated by uh, a down round. And when you have that kind of situation, you know, the courts are looking at entire fairness. It's not just whether the price is fair, but also whether the process was fair. So let's talk a little bit about, I think this cuts across both private and public companies, given that we're talking about business judgment rule and that application. But what are, what are the kinds of things that you might do to mitigate that kind of conflict of interest or fairness test? So for public companies, the good news is you don't typically have a preferred director or a director that's designated at this point, if you're just entering into your first down round phase, you typically don't have a director that is per se conflicted because you have to have a majority of independent directors as being on the exchange anyway. So the good news is a lot of times you will have invest directors who, while they certainly may have stock ownership in the company or maybe you know a fund that they might be loosely affiliated with may have invested at one point in time, they're often not designated and they don't hold like a substantial, usually a substantial number of shares. So they're kind of in it with the common stockholders like everyone else. That's the good news, um, at least for public company directors, is that not as much of an issue. So, you know, the alternative is, you know, on the, on the private company side, as you pointed out, Steve, very often the board is principally, if not exclusively, uh, made up of either the founders and then preferred stockholders. And so you do have a concern about, do you actually have anybody who is going to be viewed as independent? But, you know, I think most of the time I, when I've been in this situation, I have, you know, at least one, hopefully two board members who would be viewed as being disinterested. And believe it or not, even founders could be viewed as disinterested in connection with a down round financing, as long as they're not going to be participating in it. So typically what we'll do in that situation, there's that again, kind of a tried and true approach to build the board, the best possible process to protect it in the event that they're challenged down the road. We would typically appoint a special committee of disinterested directors who would then review, negotiate, and approve any terms of any downround financing that are agreed to. We also would advise a company, if they can do this, if they have the money, to actually even get a third-party evaluation opinion, a fairness opinion. Unfortunately, very few companies will do that because of the cost and timing. But if you get that, that is another really good protection to have in place for the board with respect to uh, you know why that valuation was used and giving them some protection on that. And then finally, pretty much across the board, we will also advise the company to engage in what's called a rights offering. A rights offering very simply just means that once you've negotiated all the terms of this financing, you will then go ahead uh, and offer all of the existing stockholders. And again, a little caveat, you've got to be somewhat thoughtful about whether they're accredited or not accredited and how you offer that to them. But effectively, you offer to all the existing stockholders an opportunity to buy what's called their pro rata share to participate in that down round financing. And if you do those three things, you've done pretty much everything you can do to protect the board 
you know, a fourth step that you can do, again, not specifically required under Delaware law, but always a good one if you could do it, is to, even with all those three steps, to also have the financing approved by a majority of disinterested stockholders, meaning, again, a majority of the stockholders that are not going to be buying shares in that down round financing. Yeah, one practice point on that last point, which I think is very important, is making sure that you give full disclosure and description as to what's happening when you're seeking disinterested shareholder vote. Sometimes there's a an instinct to say, well, we don't want to say everything because it, it'll be embarrassing or could have implications on, you know, sort of how people feel about us. But I think in this context, you know, where you're really trying to get a cleansing vote, so to speak, you want to be as upfront and and as clear and as full disclosure as possible. So we talked about it a little bit, but often in these private company situations, there's either an external investor coming in who is setting this down round price and likely also setting some maybe difficult terms. And often it can come from an existing investor. And one of the big distinctions I see between maybe 2008, 2009 and 2001, 2002 and now is there was a lot of investment by sort of these large investment funds. And those are investors who may or may not be on the board and may or may not be there to support you like your investors before. And so, it, you know, a lot of times what we look at when we look at financing in these t- difficult situations, we look at, hey, who on the board can support us? And often the terms are coming from somebody on the board. And as you mentioned, Jeremy, we got to be very careful about how you process that and negotiate that. What are some of the terms that in a down round, terms that investors might be looking for, whether they're insiders or outsiders? Sure. Well, look, you know, again, a lot of it depends upon how extreme the company's situation is. Hopefully, the company is engaging in this financing while they're you know, certainly more than six months of capital. So they have a little more negotiating leverage. But look, you would expect that not only are you going to have a lower valuation, but you might have some more, you know, I'll call them investor favorable terms. How's that? In, in the preferred stock that's going to get put in place. What does that mean? Well, generally, uh, it starts with what we call the liquidation preference, right? So during this boom, and during really all the booms, you typically don't see anything more than what's called a 1x liquidation preference, meaning that your preferred stock investors get back their money before the common stockholders do in the event of a sale transaction that doesn't result in them making more money by converting their preferred stock into common stock. So if the company hasn't done very well, they have that downside protection, they get back their money first. And that's sort of you know, where you are when you're in the sort of boom times. Now, when, when you're out of the boom times, there can be put on, on top of that 1x, a dividend, an accruing dividend. So maybe they would now get 1x plus, let's call it you know, 5 to 8% annual dividends for all the time that that preferred stock was sitting out there before some transaction happens. Uh, And then the next uh, sort of uh, more investor favorable would be a multiple of liquidation preferences, meaning they wouldn't just get back their money. They might get two times their money or three times their money back as a minimum before the common stock, which is what's held by founders, obviously, right? Before the common stock would participate in any proceeds of a, of a sale transaction. So that that's probably the most typical, um, you know, I talked earlier about the anti-dilution rights. Again, during boom times, anti-dilution protection for existing preferred holders or new preferred holders tends to be what we call broad-based, meaning it's sort of a, a calculation that indicates when you've raised the money, 
how, how many shares are being sold versus how many existing shares exist. So it's sort of a balance of like, you know, what the, how the anti-dilution hits the um, common stockholders versus what's called a ratchet, which doesn't take into account how many shares are being sold or sort of the relative impact of dilution. It just basically says, hey, you sold money before at, you know, $20 a share. Now you're now or shares at $20 a share. Now you're selling shares at $10 a share. Our price drops to $10. And if you just do the math, right, when it drops 50%, it means you're going to get double the amount of shares now, right? So on a conversion, you've now resulted in in double the number of shares. So a much more aggressive anti-dilution protection. You will tend to see that in these more, you know, uh, trying economic times, Steve. You know, if I'm representing the company, obviously, I try to limit that uh, so that maybe they only have that protection for a year, you know, on the theory that, hey, look, you know, if, if that financing held up for a year then there probably wasn't an okay valuation. You shouldn't sort of have protection forever uh, if things continue to deteriorate down the road. Those are probably the things you'd see most typically where it's becoming more investor favorable. Now, again, you know, boy, <laughs> I'm sitting here thinking about during 08, you know, we had some really nasty terms, right? We had deals with had warrants and discounts and, you know, all kinds of really, really nasty things. I hope we don't get there this time, Steve. Speaking of that, maybe on the public company side, Sometimes in these down round situations, as Melanie knows, uh, things can get a little toxic. Yes, and that's not a pop song. Things get <laughs> can get very toxic. But you know, it's a very horrible time for companies. And I really want I really, really empathize with my clients who are in this situation because as Jeremy pointed out, the stock market and how it performs and sometimes the value of a company's common stock is not necessarily reflective of what is happening in the business. It is because the stock market is a market and common stock, your company's common stock is itself a commodity. And so I think the theme I would tell people as we start to get into the town round, if you're a public company CFO, if you're a public company CEO, the theme that I always hear in my mind is do not try this at home. This is where things get really interesting as far as terms go. So number one, what are some of the terms you're going to start to see that maybe you haven't seen before? You're going to start to see warrant coverage. Not necessarily so bad, but what does warrant coverage really mean for a public company? Oftentimes, warrants are used by hedge funds to help cover their shorts. And basically, a short is a investor selling stock that it doesn't own. So if, if a hedge fund or an investor sells stock that it doesn't own at $3, it has to eventually come back and buy that share, those shares to cover that short. So if they sold them at $3, but they have a warrant that says they will never pay more than a dollar for those shares, well, then they can just do that all day long because that warrant will backstop the shorting positions in your stock. So warrants, that's number one. But I would love to say that it doesn't get any worse from there. But unfortunately, it does. When I refer to toxic instruments, which are other terms you might see, these are instruments that are convertible or exercisable for shares of a company's common stock, the stock that's traded on the market. And what makes them toxic is those instruments, the conversion price or the rate at which they convert into common stock varies with the market price. Now, again, your stock, common stock, it's a market. So the more of your common stock that's going into the market, the more supply. 
so the lower the price can be. So as so what tends to happen is as these instruments get exercised, the new stock coming into the market pushes down the price because the market sees that dilution. And then as the price starts to move down, the other unexercised instruments that still have those toxic features, well, now those conversion prices are lower. So more shares are coming into the market. So it creates sort of this cycle. And the worst worst of them all is actually something we call death spiral preferred, which is in and of itself sort of like it sounds. It's a death spiral where the more shares that are issued, the stock price continues to reset and it continues to go down and down. As you can imagine, seeing water go down the drain in your bathtub um, is your stock price. The other thing that they, you'll see are what we would call explosion or explosion features. These are things where, as Jeremy pointed out, you might have an anti-dilution adjustment. It's probably full ratchet. But in addition to that exercise price or conversion price being adjusted down, the share numbers are adjusted up so that the aggregate exercise or conversion price remains the same. So what does that really mean? That means that not only are you having that conversion price go down and more shares might be flooding into the market, the number of shares on that derivative instrument is going up. Now, so all of this can create an incredibly depressive effect. And these financial instruments, the way that they're drafted are also very complicated. I would say that not even all capital markets lawyers who are experienced in capital markets are necessarily experienced in toxic and explosive instruments. These are a certain type of deals and you need to make sure you have a lawyer that knows what they are doing because that devil is in the detail of those deals. And so you can be very, very careful there. So, and then as you get onto that, remember public companies are on exchanges And this means these exchanges have an interest in creating a fair market. Exchanges do not favor these toxic instruments. So not only are you thinking about the terms, the implications on the price, you also have to have a lawyer that knows what they're doing and can understand how do these terms and the implications on the price affect my ability to comply with the exchange and SEC rules. All very important, very complicated things, unfortunately, for companies. No, that's very helpful. Uh, I mean, uh, death spirals, explosions, Britney Spears' number one hits. These are the things (laughs) that are keeping public company CEOs up at night. You know, the question I'm getting from a lot of private company CEOs right now is, what is a pay-to-play provision? And sometimes that gets confused with its close cousin, which is a forced conversion provision. And maybe, Jeremy, if you can give us just a couple minutes on explaining what those things are, just so our listeners are are aware of them uh, when they hear them next. Sure, sure. So the the pay to play, maybe just circle back a little bit. Prior to the dot-com crash in 2000-2001, we really didn't see any sort of obligation of existing investors to step up and buy their pro rata share of any new investments. It just wasn't sort of on the radar screen. I think what happened when 2000-2001 happened and a lot of the VCs saw that these companies needed financing and they were, you know, they had some dry powder in their fund, but the other investors did not. And then they were funding these companies to keep them alive. But meanwhile, these other investors still got to hold on to their preferred stock with all the rights that come along with it with a share of preferred stock. As we talked about, liquidation preferences, maybe dividends, voting rights, all these things. So really it was in that time when people started to focus on, well, wait a minute, that's not really fair, right? If I'm going to continue to provide funding for this business, 
then shouldn't I have the preferential rights and shouldn't the investors that their money's already been used, it's gone, and they're not continuing to write checks to keep the company moving forward, why do they get to still have all these protections? So that basically resulted in a lot of these pay-to-play provisions then being implemented in the, after that time period, where effectively it says, look, you know, we all buy the preferred stock, but if we're going to do another round, if you don't buy what's called your pro rata share of that next round, some something terrible is going to happen to you, right? And that something terrible could be as bad as you're converted into common automatically, or it could be that you lose the liquidation preference, or it could be you lose block rights or voting rights, or it could be you lose your board seats, and it could be you know any combination of any of those things. So they're highly negotiated what those mean. So your point, Steve, is well taken. It's not necessarily a forced conversion. It could be lots of other things short of being converted into common stock. And it really depends upon, you know, the negotiation between, and it's really among the existing investors, as you could imagine. In a lot of ways, the company, you know, doesn't have as much skin in the game on that. Although certainly uh, as a founder, you know, you'd prefer to get rid of the liquidation stack on top of you and have people get converted into common. Uh, it gives you the ability to hopefully participate a little sooner, a little earlier in proceeds. Yeah, I mean, the, the challenge, of course, is oftentimes it comes with fairly aggressive terms like additional liquidation preference or cumulative dividends or something that's worse than maybe just having a, <laughs> as you mentioned earlier, kind of the one times non-participating liquidation preference. All right. For our last topic uh, of this particular podcast, you know, I think it'd be great for us to pass along some of our advice around how to avoid or mitigate a down round, particularly, as you say, Jeremy, because it's not a foregone conclusion that the macroeconomic environment that we're in now and as we're heading into into the 2023, it's not a foregone conclusion that down rounds will be there. Uh, it's just that we're predicting based on previous history that down rounds were a big part of the, the economic market, but it's not a foregone conclusion. So how can we avoid those or, or mitigate them? Maybe start with Melanie on the public company side. Well, I think that on the public company side, one of the best things you could do is to look to your cash runway and very aggressively manage your cash runway. And there's been research done where investors have tried to find the sweet spot where if a company, when is their investment most likely to be profitable? And what companies or these investors have found is that generally you want to have a cash runway that is at least 12 to 18 months. You don't want to be a going concern. So the, the best advice you can give, I would give to companies is manage your cash runway and raise the money when you can to the extent you think you will need it in the future that is meant to protect you during the downtime so that you don't have to hopefully enter the market when you're going to get very bad terms. Sometimes it can't be avoided. And if that happens, you should call me or you should call a lawyer that knows how to deal with downtown financings in the public market. But my number one advice is manage, manage, manage your cash runway. That is of number one importance. What happens sometimes too in the in the public company context, even Melanie, right, is companies will they'll turn to the debt markets, right, to try to extend that runway rather than take the dilution with equity, they'll turn to debt. Yeah, that's and true. if it's straight debt, you know, again, I think as long as you, everybody understands the risks of straight debt, that it has an actual due date and you may have to deal with refinancing it down the road or, you know, paying it off at that time if you have that ability, you know, that could be a really good alternative. Sometimes what happens, though, is companies will turn to what's called a convertible debt instrument. And that sort of raises some of the issues that Melanie talked about before with warrants 
it sort of opens up some interesting hedging positions that could have negative impacts on your stock. But there are other ways to raise money, uh, certainly in the public markets. And again, same thing with the private companies, just you know, quickly switching over. Again, exactly as Melanie said, you know, job number one is always manage the expenses. You know, we're seeing this, unfortunately, right now, right in the public companies, but even in private companies, right, layoffs, expense reductions, you know, consolidating office space, all the things you would typically see to reduce expenses. And then using debt instruments, the extent that you can get it, there's certainly lenders out there that lend to venture-backed companies. So, you know, use debt to try to extend the runway. And then in the private company, you have the option that's a little harder to do in a public company, but we also have what we call the flat round, right? So you you kind of do your financing, hopefully either at the same valuation or kind of get there by using some instruments like uh, you're very familiar with, Steve, like a safe or something like that, or a convertible note that you know is, is set at a valuation that converts at the same valuation as your last round. So you're not really taking the dilution yet, you're sort of putting it off into the future when you do a future round of, uh, of uh, equity fundraising. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I think uh, I'm talking to clients right now about a number of things, including M&A, spinning out uh, non-core technologies to raise some money and also reduce burn. I'm talking to clients about, you know, restructuring of the workforce. I mean, we're not seeing kind of mass layoffs in the way we did in 08, I think because the market is different. But, you know, a lot of my clients were kind of in what I call blitzkrieg growth mode for the last two years, where just hiring and growing and doing was what was being rewarded. And of course, uh, most of our clients felt like, you know, money was easy to obtain. You know, I'm, I'm talking to them a lot now about managed growth. Let's make sure that the folks that are working on our core product are supported. And then let's, let's save a little bit of our uh, dry powder for opportunistic areas of growth rather than just the full Blitzkrieg growth. And I think that that's helping to scope, uh, you know, working with the CFOs, helping to scope how to get yourself to uh, a healthy market. That may come in 2023. As you say, we can't predict everything. It may come in 2024. I know a lot of my clients are looking just to even have cash in 2025. But, you know, a, a couple other concepts that you guys touched on earlier that I think are helpful is maybe to not suffer a down round, you can offer sweetened terms. You know, we talked about participating preferred and cumulative dividends and voting rights and board seats and things like that. Maybe one thing you can do as a, as a company if you want to avoid the down round is just offer some better terms. Now you want to balance that. Talk to your lawyers about balancing those better terms versus down round for ultimate dilution over time. But I, I've noticed that that can be a, a technique that can be used effectively. One thing that might be different now than in 2008 or, or in 2001 is, you know, there are a lot of uh, secondary markets opened up. So private company secondary markets. And one of the techniques I've been talking to my clients about is, you know, my wife in 2001 was a millionaire on paper with a public company that she worked for. And she rode that public company down to zero and through the bankruptcy. And now we have wallpaper for our bathrooms with those stock certificates. But <laughs> I think a lot of employees are aware that their concentration of ownership in a company can have a lot of value drivers. But maybe it could be helpful to balance that by, by offloading some of that uh, stock that you're receiving in your company. And I think that's maybe a technique we could use to maybe sweeten the pot, so to speak. So we do a flat round, let's say, or a slightly uptick round, but the secondaries are at a lower valuation. 
That provides some liquidity to our employees who might need liquidity more than ever going into this sort of unstable future. And it also allows for a dollar cost averaging for the investor. That's a technique that didn't exist, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. So that's another thing for companies to look at potentially. Uh, All right. Before we move uh, to closing the podcast, any final pieces of advice for our clients around this topic of rough seas in the boardroom? Yeah, I mean, I think I would just echo something Melanie said, right? There's a lot of risk when you're doing a financing at a lower valuation. You want to make sure that you've planned it, that you've got good legal advice, potentially if you can afford it, good financial advice with an advisory firm. Plan, plan, plan. Make sure you've got all the steps laid out. Look at all the alternatives, Steve. I love some of the alternatives you talked about. Think if there's ways that you can sort of avoid getting to that point. And then um, and if you do, you know, there's a process that you follow. And if you're working with experienced advisors, they're going to get you through that. And hopefully, look, nobody could ever say someone can't sue you, but at least uh, the good advisors can put you in a position where the chance of you winning any litigation is much higher. Thanks, Jeremy. Now, I'd like to point out, too, that on our Mint's Edge, which is our, our website that's uh, meant for growth stage companies and has lots of great resources on there. But one of the great resources on there is an article from you on this very topic of what are the important matters to consider when you're facing a down round. So I encourage all of our uh, listeners to, uh, to visit the Mint's Edge website and take a look at that article. And Melanie, anything uh, on the last parting thoughts about public companies and where we're heading here and how to protect yourself? Well, I think particularly as if you're an audit committee member and as a board member generally, just really keeping a close eye on, as Jeremy said, expenses, when will you have to raise, what is your cash runway, and doing the best that you can to try to avoid a very turbulent market. And then unfortunately, if it does get to that point, I I think my advice would be the same. No one expects a board member to be an expert in toxic instruments. That's unreasonable. I don't think many people would want that. But certainly ask questions, ask questions of your advisors. And again, if you do find yourself in a situation where you're doing that sort of deal, it's, it's very complicated. It's very complicated even for people that are in this space. So ask the questions until you feel comfortable that you understand it and are able to gauge the risk and the benefit. Thank you both. Uh, this has been uh, the Mint's podcast series in the boardroom, practical advice and guidance for growth-oriented companies. And our topic today was on navigating down rounds in the rough economic seas. I'm Steve Osborne. Thank you to my colleagues, Melanie Levy and Jeremy Glazier. We'll see you on the next podcast. 